Happy Tuesday and welcome to Not Boring Founders. For the last Not Boring Founders episode of 2022, we had to go thrice as nice with an interview of all three co-founders of Exponential, Mehdi Labar, Driss Benamore, and Greg Dismajan. Exponential is a not boring capital portfolio company that lets investors discover, assess, and invest in DeFi projects across chains. We focus this conversation on the assess piece, how Exponential assesses the risk of liquidity pools and assigns a risk grade by looking at things like how long the project has been around, the risk of a death spiral, as we saw it with Terra Luna, code quality, dependencies, and a whole lot more. In under a year, Exponential has created the most sophisticated risk scoring in DeFi. You can even grade the riskiness of the assets in your wallet right now by going to exponential.fi. That's exponential.fi. Just plug in your wallet. They'll assign a grade to everything that you already have in your wallet. They've apparently saved people's asses many times by showing them that they have some grade F stuff in there. Risk is Exponential's wedge into becoming the most trusted platform for investing in DeFi. That seemed like a pretty smart strategy and wedge when I invested last year, but given the events of 2022, it seems downright genius right now. Risk is the place to focus. So we dive deep into all things DeFi and risk in this conversation. It's a must listen for anybody interested in investing in DeFi, and I hope you enjoy it. Now let's get to it. Driss, Mehdi, Greg, welcome to Not Boring Founders. Hello. Excited. This is our... Our first, our first three on one. So this is going to be. If, if this is not three times as good as a normal episode, we've done we've done something horribly wrong. But we were talking before this. You sent me a draft of a blog post on November second. Was that eight days before FTX, saying how exponential is solving DeFi's biggest problem, risk. And so obviously the huge caveat: FTX is not DeFi, but risk is obviously this huge theme in the crypto space. What was the inspiration for? that post and we'll use that as a way to dive into the inspiration for the company. There is 40 billion of funds that were lost over the past year because risk was not properly assessed. And today at Exponential Lotify, we've identified about 3 billion invested in high risk contracts. So like just starting there, the numbers speak for themselves. The reason we, we decided to focus on this is we want to make DeFi accessible and simplify DeFi investing. But if investors cannot make the right decisions from a place of confidence with the right data, then there is no point in building an investment platform. So we're like, let's start by solving the most important problem, table stakes, giving users the ability to understand what they're getting into, understand risk, understand the, the investment opportunities before before, before essentially they, we build the ability to simplify trading. And with that said, maybe Greg and Mehdi, you want to jump in and, and talk a little bit more about the risk framework itself. High level is when you think about DeFi and the reason why it's so powerful is it allows removing that intermediary with the idea being that anybody can read the smart contract, can understand what it does and can trust it. And that sounds great in theory, but in reality, almost no one can read a smart contract you know, I have 20 years in software development and I can tell you that the best engineers make mistakes in their code and you have to be able to understand the code. You have to be able to understand finance because some of this stuff is talking about options and puts and like really understand that. And then on top of that, there's some amount of legal that you also need to really understand. 
And then you have the fact that each smart contract is not independent in and of itself, that it relies on other smart contracts and references them. And so you get into this space where to really understand the risk of one smart contract, you actually have to research 20 smart contracts, be under, able to understand software, finance, law, and compounding risk, right? And so the idea being that like one risk over here is independent of this risk over there, is independent of this risk over there. And if anybody remembers statistics, those risks compound to the point where like you have a real chance of losing all of your money. With the idea being like, if we're trying to get to this point where people can actually trust DeFi and compare it to a bank, we well, gotta really be able to understand risk. And our perspective, and this really came from Medi, is that nobody out there can do this at scale, right? Like it takes days, hours, weeks to understand one smart contract. And then you go, there are 10,000 plus smart contracts out there. No one has the time to do that. And so like, even if you want to invest in DeFi, the like opportunity cost is so high. And so what we've done is we have mapped the network of all of those smart contracts. We've identified 60 different risk categories. And then we've tried to rate each smart contract across those 60 different categories to establish a baseline of what that risk is. I feel like we went from this period of time, maybe a year ago, where to at least people outside of the industry, centralized stuff, CFI was like, you know, maybe not as sexy, but like less risky. DeFi was risky to now this kind of meme that DeFi is this totally safe thing where you're totally in control and anything centralized at all is super, super risky. How do you define risk broadly? And then what are some of the big ones among those 60 that, that people should be looking out for? I can take a crack at that. Look, our mission is to bring rationality to DeFi. We think that DeFi is something that is actually like very powerful, but we were glorifying the DGEN and the apes for a little bit too long. And so we think that we actually can and have to, as an industry and an ecosystem, we have to look at risk because that's what's facing the reward. We had these amazing yields, but we need to understand the risk. And the issue is that risk is really hard. Just as Greg mentioned, you have like these black swans, like events that you don't predict. And actually in a world that is not regulated, that is not like, that is based on code as low, you have a lot of unpredictable events. And that's what makes DeFi risk pretty hard because you actually need a, a framework that takes and covers all types of risks possible. So the way that we do it is like, we look at the risk of a protocol, the risk of an asset, the risk of a chain. And then we compound all of this into a, the risk of a pool, which is basically an investment opportunity or an opportunity to generate yield. And so we, we bring all of this together. We go actually much deeper into, in terms of layers. For the protocols, we are going to look into the protocol design to understand how the incentives work together. Because sometimes the incentives are not aligned. If they're not aligned, well, you have issues of people taking advantage of protocols. In protocols, again, we are going to look at to the Lindy effect, like how long has the protocol been around, saying that a protocol that's really new is probably a riskier than a protocol that has been around battle-tested. We think that these protocols are going to become the infrastructure of Internet of Money, uh, and that's, that's something that's really powerful. Protocols, again, we are going to look into the code and look at the audits. How many hacks has, did we have there? And so that's just for protocol. We are going to do some type of work that is very similar in terms of chain, the, the level of decentralization. We're going to do a lot of research. 
which ends up being something more than 40 hours of research, as Greg mentioned, just for one. At this point, at Exponential, is that your team going in and manually doing the research? How much of the, the rescoring are you automating away with code at this point? And then where does that trend over time? How much can you just automate away and then write code to analyze? The experience of having done startups before is you start with doing the unscalable stuff and then you figure out which parts are the hardest and you try and scale those. And so I would say it's hard to put a number to it, but maybe like 20, 30% of it is automated right now. And 70% of it is manual with the idea being that we'll probably get to that 80, 20, where like 80% of it's automated and 20% of it will always require some form of manual. You know, some of this information is on chain. Some of it's not on chain. Some of it we're able to pull from other sources. Some of it we're not. We're like constantly finding ways to automate pulling of more information. But truthfully, I doubt we'll ever get to a point where it's 100% automated because there's always going to be new stuff. There's always going to be some level of human, like really understanding the economics of how something works. And, you know, looking at like audits and actual code quality, there's places where you're going to want some level of that expert looking at something and, and making a call. And we try and make it as objective as possible, but it's a really hard problem, which is why it's so much fun to work on. You mentioned audits there. How do audits play into this? Because, you know, there are great auditors out there and then there are plenty of audited smart contracts that have been hacked and have had all sorts of issues. And even some of the very reputable auditors have missed things. So how does audit play into it? And you have to like kind of re-audit everything. I, this is like a regular, I think, debate between Betty and I is like, there's the concept of a false negative just because you have an audit and they didn't find anything that doesn't actually tell you anything. And Absolutely. so we've tried to look at like auditors track records, which auditors have missed stuff, how bad was the stuff that they missed. And so essentially we have a list of like these auditors we actually relatively trust knowing that like no one's going to be perfect. And these other ones we don't really trust at all. And we don't kind of put any weight into the fact that they did an audit. And we're constantly updating that, realizing that like no one's going to be perfect, but that you, there are folks that have clearly proven more capable than others. And it's an interesting thing in terms of we regularly debate as we kind of look at these risk scores, like how much do you take into account like an honor finding something? Like in some degrees, that's better than them finding nothing. On the other hand, them finding nothing could mean that you actually have perfect code. But as a principal engineer once told me, the only perfect code is one with no line. Right. So audits are also one metric amongst hundreds. And one thing I wanted to add in terms of making the system scalable is we created what we call the DeFi graph, which maps all the dependencies. So if we update a rating on a protocol, an asset, it will trickle down throughout the entire system, which makes it very scalable. And we invested in that upfront. So that allows us to essentially reduce the amount of ma manual work significantly. What we care about is making risk understandable. So we, we summarize things into a grade going from A to F or school grade, simple. Um, and, and so the user can understand, okay, this is an A and it gives me 5% yield, or this is a C and it gives me 15% yield and make those trade-off. And then this is not an opaque grade. You can go zoom in and say, why is it a C? And looked at all the metrics that triggered that. Now, going back to one of your prior comments, there are like hundreds of metrics we'll look at, but there are three that are like triggering 
often triggering a DNR ad. The first one uh, is what we call reflexivity. So reflexivity, another word for it is that spiral, which is a little more scary. So that would be a design similar to UST and Luna. And there is a lot of it out there today in that 3 billion at risk that I mentioned before. I'm going to pause you there because yeah. you put grades yeah. on these things anyway. What, yeah. what out there that's still running has some of the biggest death spiral risk that is also like big and structurally important or whatever, like not some little tiny thing, but a thing that if it falls apart, that's a bad, bad thing for everybody. Can't take a crack at that one. Basically, death spiral happens whenever you have liabilities that get a little bit higher than passive. So what happens there, you have a bankrupt. You have yep. people starting to say, oh, if I don't get out now, I would be the last one naked. What we look at is we look at anything in DeFi that has that situation. It can be an asset. It can be a protocol. It can be a pool. It can be anything. So what we see here, for example, is like algorithmic stablecoins. They are trying hard in terms of innovation and creating the incentives and so on in order to create more money than they actually have in terms of assets and collateral. And so something like Frax has the same issue as Luna, as, as UST, in terms of having more liabilities than actually assets or more money printed than collateral. We like DAI, for example. DAI has 130% collateralization give or take a few percentage points. That means that for every dollar of die that is printed, there is like ab about a dollar and 30 cents behind that's backing it. And so that's how DeFi should be built. DeFi is building finance from the ground up with these Lego blocks. And these Lego blocks need to be trusted without the need to trust humans. And so in order to have that, DeFi actually requires a lot of collateralization. But what's interesting is that if you flip that and you think about finance today, Wall Street finance, it's all about credit and counterparty risk. And so it's a trust-based system. And that trust-based system looks efficient until the day that you have a big crisis. So that's the issue with Wall Street today is like every seven years or 15 years, you have a big, great financial crisis. And it again, because we increase leverage and so on. So getting back to the debt spiral, we are going to look at, for example, something that is uncollateralized lending or under-collateralized lending, like we had with Maple. We talked about it about two months ago on our platform. We talked about it about a month ago on Twitter space. We talked about it actually just last week on an interview with Tom. This weekend, we're seeing that Maple has an issue. And Maple is an uncollateralized lending protocol, the first one that actually has this dead spiral issue potentially. Thinking about that one from all of the different risk perspectives, it seems that undercollateralized lending would be a really nice thing to be able to have. Are there things when you're looking at the risk landscape that protocols might do to avoid those issues? Or is it just the nature of the system that overcollateralized is going to just be far preferable, even if it's a little bit less efficient? Look, we look at this and we say anything that could happen will happen. I think so, that's pretty safe right now. Yeah. And that's how bear markets work as well. And that's how actually finance over the long term, like hundreds of years, that that's what happens. And we don't want to discourage innovation, of course. And innovation is trying to increase the level of efficiency and productivity that we have. 
by putting less collateral in front of these Lego blocks that we're using for finance. The reality is that in a trustless environment, we go with the idea that you should build things right. We should not bring in what are the issues of Wall Street into DeFi. DeFi is actually a much superior system. It's the future of money. It's the infrastructure of the internet of money. All of that is going to be very significant in the next decade for humanity. And it should be built right in a way that is like as sustainable as the internet and water. Like you were saying, like, it doesn't mean that stuff shouldn't exist, right? Like penny stocks exist. There are poorly rated bonds, but you should be getting the risk adjusted return as a result of that. And I think what we have seen is a lot of people are investing, not really understanding what that risk is and not getting the appropriate return and being aware that they're putting all of their capital at risk. And so it's where you have people putting capital that they think it's in someplace safe and then losing it all, you know, Luna be Terra being the like prime example of that to this point, those are the sorts of things that we want to make sure we people avoid. If you want to go invest in penny stocks and play these high risk bets, like that is a investment strategy. There are people who apparently do well at that. I don't know that I would go out and recommend it, but like that option should be out there. It doesn't mean it shouldn't exist. You should just be able to do it knowingly. And that makes a ton of sense. So death spiral number one, Tris, what's big risk number two? Yeah, they're, they're related, but it's Mehdi touched upon it already, which is the level of collateralization. It's important. And the third one is the quality of the collateral is very important as well. You can have 130% with vaporware, which is a token you printed yourself. So that's, that's very important as well. Those are like super table stakes and trigger kind of things being rated D, D and F in the framework. There is an interesting story to, to jump on what Greg mentioned here on like where this whole thing started. We're running an early re research session with a prospective user, right? He was looking at the product, getting all excited, right? Because he mostly wanted to trade in one click, which is what we're going to build next. But then he sees a pool and he's like, that's an F. And he kept saying, that's an F. And I'm like, yes, that's an F. And he said it again, that's an F. And I'm like, yeah, wh what's up? He's like, I have seven figures in that pool. And I thought he was an A and in my head. And th th that's what Greg said. That's where it came from. Because we need users to know if they want to invest in an F, that's perfectly fine and get like 300% yield. That's their choice. But they need to know about it. What we're trying to avoid and why we focused on risk is that user knowing what they're getting into. That case is, is so interesting because to have seven figures, so over a yeah. million dollars yeah. in an F, yeah. you need to either just be rich and have been fairly sophisticated or inherited a bunch of money or made a bunch of money in DeFi. So Fairly sophisticated, kind of either way, unless you just inherited it or gambling it away. What did he miss in thinking the, the gap between an A and an F there? Very similar to UST and Luna. A lot of people, that was, by the way, like nine months ago before all of this happened. But um, people invest because their friend tells them that's safe. They're like, oh, my buddy who knows finance told me that thing is okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to invest in it. I looked into it. The team seems reliable and stuff. But as Mehdi said, there are a hundred things that can take you down. You may know 98 of them, but you miss the two that are going to take you down. And so what we try to do is have a super comprehensive or as comprehensive as we can, as possible framework that, that have these, these risks captured. Yeah. I think it was just the fact that uh, the pool was labeled as stable. It was a stable pool. Oh, yeah. It was a stable coins, but it was actually four stable coins. 
And so every one of these coins had an inherent risk. One of these was an algorithmic stablecoin that was endocollateralized. And so if you compound all these risks of like four assets into a pool that is based on two protocols, and one of the assets is bridged through another chain, it creates a lot of inherent risk. And so we captured that. But the user was looking at, the investor was looking at this as like, this is stable, a stable yeah. pool. What are some like A quality assets out there? Like, and, and I'd love more than just like a, a list of names, maybe pick one or two and explain what they do so well. I think it comes down to pools that are battle tested and that have been around for a long time. So for us, something like an automated market making pool like Uniswap, especially a V2, even the V3, because it's pretty battle tested now over a, more than a year and a half been around, is going to be nice for something that becomes more and more a real protocol, something that's like very close to what we say, the infrastructure that is reliable. We were rating Aave and Compound as A because it's best in class in lending. There wasn't an exploit that is like minimal, but it is real based on the incentives that are around it by basically looking at that collateral story that Driss mentioned, for example, where the collateral itself is not, may not have enough liquidity outside of the pool, for example. And so this is the kind of like things that we are going to be continuing to learn as we go and advance in DeFi. These are the early days of DeFi. And over time, what's wonderful is that you start to have more and more battle-tested products. I think that's one of the things that we struggle with in our conversations is we're trying to keep things objective. But at the same time, there's how much weight do you put to any of these given risks? And one of the things that we talked a lot about is we recognize the risk in Aave, but we're like, it's really hard to pull it off. And so like, how much risk does that actually equate to in the real world? As, as we were having this debate uh, across our research group and, and Driss and I get pulled into that as, and in terms of like, we recognize this risk of like, you can exploit in this way but you need a lot of capital and like how much do you end up succeeding? And then how much does that put the whole protocol at risk versus just that pool? And given all of that information, how much weight do we put to this risk that we've identified? And so it's one thing to say we, you know, we have 60, 100 risk data points. It's another thing to be like, okay, given this risk, what is the odds that it takes your investment to zero? Because that's really like the biggest driver of that A to F rating, right? Is the fact that like you thought you had an investment and it's not like, hey, it goes up a little, it goes down a little. I think people are mostly used to that experience if they've invested in stocks and particularly in this current market. On the other hand, the risk that it goes to zero is just not one that people are cognizant of. They're like maybe aware of it, like FDIC insurance. They know some banks close and they know like financial crisis of banks got bailed out, but like nobody really lives it. And I think very few people are worried about it, but it is something that's very real in this new space. And it's something that's real in the old space too. People just are protected and they're far enough removed that they don't stress about it. When you see an edge case, low probability risk like that Aave one, but you've done the work and you've uncovered the thing, do you flag it somehow? And you're like, this is an A, but there's this like one thing that could happen. Or do you like keep that to yourself? What's like the ethical thing to do? 
or maybe it's just a, it's not an ethical thing and it's just a UI thing, but what's the thing to do when you have a piece of information like that with an otherwise great story? I think we don't stop at the rating. We, we actually bring as much information as we can to the user. And so when you go on a full page, for example, you are going to have a lot of information about the protocol. You're going to have a whole section about risk and we're going to detail a lot of things. We also have what we call the editorial take, where we say what we like, what we don't like, what it means for you. And, and so what we're trying to do is like take a subject that is really complicated and expert level and bring it to anyone who wants, who is able to read and understand basic things of finance and risk. And that's something that's hard because it means that we need to summarize a few things, but we are also doing it in a way that is like, we start with the basic rating. It's an A, it's a B or a C. And then we explain on big terms, like the protocol, the asset, the pool, and then we go more into the details. And so the pool page, for example, on experience.fi is going to have very simple things at the top summarized, and you're going to keep going into the rabbit hole as you go down. It's interesting. I would imagine, and we'll get to the, the future and then where this is going, but once you have the ability to kind of match trading with the scores and understanding somebody's wallet, I wonder if also sometimes it's like, hey, I just invested $10 in this thing and I have a million dollars sitting in my wallet. Like, whatever, just give me the, the, the grade. But if someone wants to put like half their wallet into something, they have to read the fine print, your choice, and you're not playing parent here but i do wonder if there's something where you just like throw up a couple extra flags if someone's about to ape into something that you that you know that there's a, an issue with potentially switching gears a little bit again yeah i guess we've talked about this question of trust a bunch why should we trust you i think probably now is a good time to go into your backgrounds and how you got into the wonderful world of, of DeFi risk and and why your people whose judgment on how we should weight things and what we should look at we should trust I think you should not trust anyone. The right answer. Hey, that's my answer. Yeah. You stole my, my answer. Plus <laughs> one. Should not trust anyone. All, all we can say is we put our best foot forward to give you the information you need to make a decision. And we made it easy for you to do that. That's all we can say. Now, well, our grade also doesn't mean, A, doesn't mean it's risk-free. A just means it's less risky than B. That's something that Greg mentioned one, one day and that, was, that, that resonated. We're not about telling you when things will fail or if they will fail. We're just tell, about telling you that A is less likely to fail than B and B is less likely to fail than C. That's it. And that's what we're, we're about. With respect to your prior comment around uh, like flagging users, flagging things to users. Today, you can go on Exponential Lot. If I enter any wallet, we have this feature called Rate My Wallet, and it tells you what's A, B, C, D in, in, in your wallet. People find it super useful. Um, and then they can go dig in and understand what's going on in their current investments before moving forward. Yeah, I've done this. This is fun. I was actually safer than I expected that I was going to be because I just do dumb <laughs> stuff sometimes with small amounts of money. So that was it was comforting to plug my wallet in and see that. All right, so we, we aren't going to trust you, but what are your backgrounds and how did you come into DeFi risk? I was going to say, to give the slightly serious answer to that is we have a breadth across this. And so we have experience in finance. We have experience in code. We have experience in law. We've experienced doing things at scale. We've experienced trust with large amounts of consumer data. So like I have experience in payments. I've also had experience at Amazon with Alexa, double checking my, my 
device is muted before I said that. Um, and experience at IFT in terms of protecting tons of PII and people's information and device information. And so we've got experience across a wide variety of potential risks. And I'll, I'll let Driss and Betty get more into theirs. And it's that cross section of experience that I think makes us as perfectly situated as one can be to at least have healthy debates about this. It doesn't mean we're going to get it 100% right. My like standard line on all of this stuff is I don't trust myself. And Driss will be like, do you trust this vendor? I was like, I don't trust myself. So like, I can't trust the vendor. <laughs> yeah. But I'm trying to put it into a perfect situation where like, I would still use the vendor, but it's like, how do you recognize when things are failing and prevent the consequences to the user if things fail? And so that we design all of our systems around that and we kind of think that way. Yeah. So the reason we're at three founders is what Greg mentioned. You, you pull this off meaning bridging Web 2 and Web 3, which is what we're doing, you need a breadth of skill sets ranging from engineering and law, which is Greg's background at various startups, myself um, looking after everything fintech and payments at Uber at scale from, the, from, from like building a system from the ground up and, and being able to move and secure billions of dollars in like 60 plus countries and so on and so forth. So that experience like I'm bringing in here to what can we do to apply that fintech web two experience to web three, um, and then Medi can speak more about his background, but is our resident DeFi crypto expert here, among other things. Yeah, he wanted to say DeFi DJ, I guess. Um, my background is 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 in finance. I have more than a decade of experience between school and like work assessing risk in places that are like frontier markets. Basically investing, for example, in Sub-Saharan Africa in infrastructure with the World Bank taught me to look back at the fundamentals of finance and the fundamentals of risk to be able to assess risk of these investments. And so I very naturally got back to those like muscles when I had to think about crypto and DeFi because these are like places where you can't expect regulation to, to help you. You can't expect precedent to help you. And the historical prices or volatility doesn't mean anything because there is none of that. And that's, I think, the background that like attracted me to finance and to DeFi and crypto when it emerged. And I, I would say, I would just add to that, that one of the strengths that we have as a team is the complementarity of skills and personalities. It's not just skills. It's also like we work very well together. We fight a lot, but I think that's actually super, very much needed in order to get to truth. And truth is really hard to get to. And I think that's why we end up with a subject that is as hard as risking DeFi. Yeah, I, I could I, tell other than just knowing it beforehand that you're the finance woman, you said that risk is what faces reward. It's something that I, I really like a lot, but yeah, facing is a very, very financy term. Where does this now go? from here? Because like the obvious one, and we hinted at it a couple of times, is that I see this thing and I'm like, all right, cool. Instead of going from seeing the score to somewhere else, this is where I do my my trading. So what what will the platform look like when I can do anything that I might do in DeFi in Exponential? Yeah, that that, that makes sense. Before I answer that, just a quick correction on, on Medi's comment. It's no longer DGEN, it's DGEN responsibly, which is also what we call our podcast, by the way, on, on Twitter space. So so our resident DGEN responsibly would be met, met each Very, uh, very meta, meta move fast with stable <laughs> infrastructure of you. That's right. 
So in terms of what the product looks like, so step one, have all the information you need to, to make the right investment decision. So you're interested, for example, in basic holding ETH and Bitcoin, instead of letting it sit, you want to actually generate yield on ETH and Bitcoin, you can find the right pool for you and the right investment opportunity, understand its risk, understand the yield you'd be getting and so on and so forth. So start with there. Then once you've made an investment decision, then it is as simple as a one-click trade. That's, that's what we're, we're shooting. Like there is no MetaMask, complexity, bridging, all of that is abstracted. The idea is you can come in, make the right decision for you, send the 10,000 USDC, which will be invested in, in the pool of your choice and you'll be able to trade buy and sell, switch between pools and so on and so forth, super seamlessly eventually. And so the first part allows you to make the right decision. The second part is once you've made the right decision, then it should be easy for you to trade and not uh, send money through a vortex and anxiously wait that it arrives on the other side of the bridge with and so on and so forth, which we've all done. I would say the third thing is actually in terms of custody. We're taking care of the custody with the state-of-the-art process, operations, technology. That's obvious. But most importantly, we want to go with the philosophy of crypto itself, which is like, not your keys, not your money. So we want you to be able to almost like uh, become someone who custodies your own tokens and LP tokens and so on. And so we are working very hard in order to make that possible, where you would be responsible once we did the trade on exponential and we simplified all of that you're also able to go with withdrawing your your lp token that seems like a pretty challenging thing and i remember this even from the first conversation like making all of that happen in the background is really really complex like for example if you make it really easy to do something on polygon and in solana and wherever else not only does that mean there's a bunch going on in the background but if you want someone to self-custody they're going to have a bunch of different wallets and they're going to have to switch networks. Like, how do you get the right level of simplicity and complexity when you're having like a Web2 front-end experience with the self-custody backend? Yeah, so um, eventually what Midi was talking about is, lo is longer term. The self-custody and easy isn't there yet. It'll take a few years to get there. Yeah. So, so initially, um, we are building the system in a way where everything is backed one-to-one. -one. Um, it is a custodial investment platform in order to achieve the simplicity that we want in order to unlock DeFi for everyone. If you decide you're ready to make the move to self-custody, you can then do that and transfer into your, your own wallet. What I suspect will happen is either ourselves or someone in the ecosystem will solve self-custody and easy eventually. And, and that's when that migration can happen, but it'll take a little bit of time. And what do you think is, is most promising there in terms of like just different avenues? Is it MPC? Is it, what are the ways that you can have self-custody and easy that now someone just needs to go out and build it? It's hard. Yeah. <laughs> it's very hard. Yes. It's hard because if you start with the principle that it needs to be trustless, it becomes anything that you are going to make it will mean less secure and a vector of attack. For example, you have like wallets that are going to tie to a smart contract that is going to actually be able to tie the wallet to your SIM card or like phone number. Then that becomes a vector of attack. And with SIM swaps or all types of ways to identify you, or you have to have a centralized party 
that is going to check your identity. All these things are actually going in the opposite direction of like self-custody. And so it is something that is still hard. That's when we saw that this was going to be a problem that is going to take many years. And so with a user-centered approach, we ended up having to do something that is like almost a blasphemy in Web3, which is like, oh, we have to build like the Coinbase of DeFi in sense, where something that is a Web2 interface that is allowing you to really do the job that you want to do with the idea that once people are able to taste DeFi and see how this is useful to them, start to think about how to self-custody. And one very important point is you can design a custodial platform with the principles of decentralized finance, which is what, what we're doing. Prioritizing security above all. Everything is backed one-to-one. So no messing with customers' funds, no liabilities would be the, the top two. And so in doing that, building the platform the right way with the right principles is something we deeply care about. And how do you achieve number two? Or you said no one should trust you at all. Is this like daily audits? Is this proof of liquidity? Is it proof of reserves? Like what are you doing to achieve particularly number two, proving that you're one-to-one? I, I think that's a, a, there's a lot of things there. So it's, there's not like a magic bullet, right? Yeah. And I think one is really being transparent and open about what we're doing, all the things that we're doing, trying to secure. And part of that, is frankly, if I'm going to build a smart contract, then you have something that's open source that lives forever and has the opportunity to be hacked. Essentially, you have code that's giving someone infinite chances and infinite time to hack. And given that constraint, if my options are build that or build a closed system and then try and be transparent about the closed system, I can build a much safer closed system faster, give users that user experience, and then figure out the right way to showcase that. And so there's things that we can do in terms of showing like, okay, when you transfer your funds in, your funds actually stay in a custodial wallet, but it's your custodial wallet. You can go look it up and see that the funds are actually there versus a Coinbase where like it goes in, like you sent it there and you just have to trust their UX that it's there, right? And so there's things that we can do along those lines. And I think the other key piece, and, and this part Coinbase does well, is that like there is that offer where like if you want to take it out, you can take it out. I think the biggest flag for us on some of these and part of where like Medi called BlockFi very early is if you make it hard for people to take it out, that suggests that something fishy is going on, right? And anybody who's limiting withdrawals or has thresholds for withdrawals, like there are some legitimate use cases around that in like real estate where like I can't liquidate real estate immediately, right? And so like you can understand why if you'd invest in a fund there, like there are withdrawal limits, but like DeFi shouldn't have that. And if somebody is trying to sell you DeFi and then has withdrawal limits, like that's a big red flag. And I think it's the same way. So like trying to do all of those things to showcase that, but there's not going to be any one thing. And on the other hand, I think we're really deep in this area where like the vast majority of people aren't, right? And so there's also a balance of like, we want to provide as much information so the people who want to go deep can really understand that and hold ourselves to the same standard that we're holding every, you know, protocols and assets and all of these things. On the other hand, you don't want to confuse users with a bunch of detail that they may not understand. And so like, we're trying to figure out how do we strike that right balance? And I don't think there's a perfect answer. If you have the answer, tell us, and then we'll just build that. 
No, I mean, I, I <laughs> would love to even dive in more on this. This is so fascinating, particularly right now, right? Like, at um, the one hand, the general public is thinking about risk in crypto in a way that never in a million years would have thought about risk in crypto without something like FTX. On the other hand, they're just knee-jerk, not trusting centralized institutions in crypto. How do you think about getting that messaging right to people that it's like, there are all these things. And if you want to dig in, we're going to be very transparent about it. I know you're saying right now that you want to dig in because of this, but like nobody actually wants to dig in. How do you understand where like people's just rage and sentiment is versus what they actually want to do and triangulate that? Show, don't say. So that's the approach we're taking. We could be building a trading platform now. We spent better part of a year building a risk platform because that's the right thing to do. Users need that and show them the data that they need. So all you can do is take the right steps and prove that you're taking the right steps. Be very transparent about it. Um, and I think um, offering the right information for users to make the right decisions is, is the first step towards building that trust. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, and you are obviously on that vector before before it was the cool thing to do, but I do think it, it makes a ton of sense. The last question here then is, you know, assuming everything goes right in the next couple of years, the next five years, the next 10 years, like what does this look like? And then what does the world look like if Exponential is as successful as humanly possible? All right, I'll take a first crack at this one. So decentralized finance is an incredible ecosystem. Like anyone can earn yields that was previously reserved for banks and intermediaries. Problem is something that Greg mentioned is the system cannot achieve its aim without trust. So without building trust, which is why we built again the risk platform, which is why I was just mentioning. So 10 years from now, if everything goes great, one, the majority of people's assets are working for themselves rather than intermediaries. Two, information is available and organized for users to make the right investment decision for them. Three, all assets, not only metaverse assets, are available and tokenized in DeFi, including stocks, real estate, and these assets are working for themselves, generating yield without intermediaries. And then four, we are the access gateway, so the ability to access those, to, to make those assets generate yield into DeFi, bridging Web 2 and Web 3. That's what the world looks like 10 years from now if we're successful. I love it. Yeah, on point three, I feel like the, the whole bear market is pulled forward, pulling real world assets on chain. Actually, like I've, I've been talking to people more and people have been working on stuff, but it really feels like there's this new focus of like, oh shit, we need to do something that actually like connects to something a little bit bigger and, and drives real value. So your vision sounds like it could be, you know, parts of it, a five-year vision. And then hopefully to your point, we're just earning our own money and not getting 0.01% on a bank account at Bank of America within the decade. Really glad that you guys are building what you're building because it's really nice to have something like Exponential out there that I can just double check beforehand. So thank you for, for building it and hope that vision comes true. Any closing thoughts before we wrap up here? Where can people find you? Yeah. So first thing is be safe out there. Our platform is here to help you make the right decision before before investing in DeFi. We're building exponential for anyone to easily first discover, assess, and invest in DeFi through our custodial investment platform. You can follow us on Twitter at Exponential DeFi. 
And you can find us on Exponential Lotify as well. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on, Greg, Driss, Medi. Congrats on the Morocco win. We're recording this right afterwards. So huge. And, and here's to many more wins for the Exponential team. Have a good one. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.